We're turning again to the book of Jeremiah. And so far in this book, we've been listening to messages that it seems were delivered in the very early days of Jeremiah's ministry. Through Jeremiah, God called the people of Judah to return to him through true repentance, not just in pretense, but with all of their hearts. And God also warned that if they did not return to him, judgment would come in the form of an enemy from the north who would sweep Judah away. God compared that enemy to a lion. He compared the enemy to a scorching wind that would lay waste the land if Judah would not repent. Last week, we looked at one of those warning messages in chapter 4. Chapter 5 and 6 continue warning about judgment. In chapter 6, God says through Jeremiah, Take warning, Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so that no one can live in it. So chapters 5 and 6 emphasize this message we've already heard. And this morning we're going to move forward and pick up at chapter 7. If you're looking for that in the church Bible, it's page 765, or in the larger print Bibles, 1184, Jeremiah chapter 7. Although this message actually appears fairly early on in the book, Jeremiah actually proclaimed this later on in his ministry. We'll find that out when we get to chapter 26, because at that point we're also told what kind of reception Jeremiah got when he preached this. But when Jeremiah came to put his messages together, when he compiled them in this book near the end of his life, I think he included this message here because it develops the general warning that we've heard. This message is more specific. God sends Jeremiah to present God's analysis of the people's worship. And God's verdict is, I see a lot of worship in Judah, but it's worthless worship. Let's read what God says in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll follow through to chapter 8, verse 3. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting 
in deceptive words that are worthless? Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So, do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out in this place on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the crops of your land. And it will burn and not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forwards. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. And when you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Cut off your hair and throw it away. Take up a lament on the barren heights, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom 
to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the signs of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of the heavens, which they have loved and served, and which they have followed and consulted and worshipped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's Word. And in this passage, God puts His finger on two aspects of worthless worship before pointing out the end result of all this. First of all, God says our worship is worthless when we have confidence in salvation without a commitment to obedience. In chapter 7, verse 2, God sends Jeremiah to the gate of the Lord's house. This is the temple in Jerusalem. It's the temple that was built by Solomon And the book of 1 Kings tells us at the dedication of the temple, the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So not only is this a magnificent place, it's a genuinely significant place. God is here. He's really here. His glory is present above the Ark of the Covenant that sits in the innermost room, the Holy of Holies. Out of all the cities in the world, Jerusalem is uniquely privileged to be the place where heaven touches earth. Four times in this passage, God describes the temple as the house which bears my name. God has chosen to identify himself with this place. The temple was not Solomon's project, it was God's. He says in this passage, This is the place I gave to you. The Israelites did not bring God down to this place. He chose to come to the temple. This is the right place to worship him. And as Jeremiah starts to preach at the gate of the temple, he's surrounded with people who are doing just that. At the end of verse 2, he calls them, You who come through these gates to worship the Lord. These are religious people. Could there be any more encouraging sight? A thriving temple busy with worshipers. We might expect God to be happy. Wouldn't we be happy to have people flocking into church? But God does not seem happy. Look at verse 3. 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. This place is probably referring to Judah as a whole. So these worshipers are thronging to the Lord's temple, yet they're in danger of being turfed out of the land. Why? What's the problem? In verse 4, God says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. People of Judah are right in thinking the temple is a special place. They're right in thinking God is actually present at the temple. But they are wrong to think the temple will keep them safe no matter how they live. This quotation in verse 4, it suggests they're viewing the temple almost like a lucky charm. We'll say it three times. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like it's a magic mantra that will ward off trouble. God's in the temple. He's like our genie in a bottle. He'll keep us safe. But God says the temple guarantees nothing if your lives are rotten. In particular, God mentions the way they treat each other and the way they treat the most vulnerable in their society. He wants them to be just and fair in their dealings with one another. He wants them not to oppress and not to exploit those who are easily oppressible and exploitable. In verse 6, the foreigner is what today we would call a refugee. So it's not just someone who's come from another country, it's someone who's cut off from the support of their family and their relatives. And as we hear this, let's remember, this is not new information God is giving to the people. God had not left Israel to guess how to treat one another and how to treat the vulnerable. The books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy set out his detailed blueprint for a just and caring society. That's what the Old Testament law is. It's a divinely given plan for loving God and loving our neighbor. It was never intended as a way to earn God's favor. It was a response to his favor and his love. Before he gave the law, he rescued the Israelites from Egypt. He acted first in love. And then the law showed how to live as God's chosen, loved people. And here, down in verse 9, God is referring to the summary of his law that's found in the Ten Commandments, in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come 
and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The people of Judah think they can live how they want and still claim the blessing and protection of the Lord. They have confidence in salvation without a commitment to obedience. And here God says to Judah, you are crazy if you think you can ignore my commands and live how you please, but still prance into my temple and count on being saved. The hills in Judah had a whole systems of caves in those hills. And thieves were notorious for going out on sprees of robbery and pillage and then running to the hills where they could hide out. In the hills, they could escape the authorities and they could escape justice. They were too hard to find. And here God says to Judah, you are treating my temple like those caves up in the hills like a den of robbers, a place where you can hide out and be safe from the consequences of your sin. As if you can do what you like and then take shelter in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But God says your confidence is misguided. Yes, I am a place of refuge for the oppressed, I am a shelter for the repentant. I am a refuge for those who see the ugliness of their sin, who are sick of it and want to turn away from it. But I'm not a refuge for the unrepentant. I'm not a refuge for oppressors and thieves and adulterers and liars who want to continue in their sin and expect me to protect them. God says, my temple is not designed as a den for robbers. And if you treat it that way, you will find it doesn't work. In verse 12, God says, if you want to see evidence of that, go on a field trip to Shiloh. Shiloh was about 20 miles outside Jerusalem. Back in the days of Samuel, it had been the Lord's sanctuary. It was nowhere near as grand as this temple in Jerusalem. But before the Israelites had even conquered the city of Jerusalem, Shiloh was the place of God's presence. And the Israelites had come to treat it as the way, the way their ancestors are now treating the temple, like a place that allowed them to live how they liked without worrying about the consequences. We've got Shiloh, Shiloh, Shiloh. We're safe. And here God says to the people of Judah, hire a few coaches and head over to Shiloh. Have a walk around. See where their misguided confidence got them. What you'll find is Shiloh isn't there anymore. It's gone. It was destroyed by the Philistines. The point is I don't allow my people to treat my dwelling place like a hideout for robbers. I don't shield unrepentant sinners from the consequences of their sin. Generations later, Jesus 
took Jeremiah's words about a den of robbers and he applied them to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. The people of Jesus' day were making the same old mistake all over again, thinking the temple was going to keep them safe. But Jesus said, it's not going to work this time either. Your enemies will not leave one stone on top of another in this place. Now you and I know that our situation is not the same as the one Jesus or Jeremiah were speaking to. I'm sure that we realize this building is not the temple of the Lord. But that doesn't mean there is no temple of the Lord today. The New Testament says the church is the temple of the Lord. The church is not a temple built of bricks. It's made up of living stones. It's a community of people who belong to Jesus. Our situation is not the same as Judas. But can you see how we might be tempted to treat the church like Judah was treating the temple? Thinking maybe that we can spend six days happily breaking God's commands and then come here on Sunday singing, Jesus, 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 we're safe. Now, it is wonderfully true that Jesus is our Savior. He is our shelter from the worst of storms. We sang that earlier. It's true. We can never earn His acceptance. We can never work our way to it. But when we run to Jesus in repentance, we find that He welcomes us. He forgives us. He takes us in His powerful grip and He will never let us go. It's true. But if we treat Jesus as a means of getting away with sin and disobedience, if we treat him like a hideout that enables us to go and sin carelessly because Jesus loves us, Jesus loves us, Jesus loves us, and he'll protect us from God's wrath, if that is our attitude, then our confidence is misplaced. Because Jesus does not shelter those who try to use him as a way of fireproofing their lives. While they're committed to selfishness and getting one over on others and flouting God's call to love him and love our neighbor. Our worship is worthless when we have confidence in salvation without a commitment to obedience. And it's also worthless when we are living life without listening to God. If the issue in verses 1 to 15 was a misplaced confidence, treating the temple worship like it was a getaway with sin card, here the issue is slightly different. It's treating temple worship like a way to give God his tuppence worth while the people get on with the serious business of living life according to their own wisdom for their own priorities. Whatever little gesture the people are making to God at the temple, they're living their lives without listening to Him, which means they're not living for Him. That's the problem here. The key word in this section is the word listen. 
Three times God says, these people don't listen to me. And by that he means they take no account of me when they make their plans and decisions. I have no actual bearing on their life. Yes, they throw me a bone at the temple once a week, but beyond that, they never pay attention to me or take me into account. And that may help us to understand what God says to Jeremiah in verse 16. So, do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. In the context here, I think God is saying, so long as these people refuse to listen to me, you're not to ask me to hold back my judgment on them. And in this context, we know the judgment that is hanging over Judah is that an enemy from the north will lay waste their land and take them into exile. So long as Judah refuses to listen to God, Jeremiah is not to petition God to hold back the enemy from the north. So long as Judah doesn't listen to God, God will not listen to prayers asking for a stay of execution. And if that's the correct understanding of what's going on here, that means we need to be very careful about applying this verse to our own context. Because when it comes to final, eternal judgment, there is no hint in the Bible that we're to give up praying for anyone until they're dead. If they're still breathing, you keep praying for God to have mercy on them and save them. But here in Jeremiah, it is not final judgment that's in view. If God brings this enemy from the north down on Judah, world history is still going to go on. Back in chapter 4, God said, if this judgment comes, as terrible as it will be, it will not be a complete end. It won't be the final judgment. So if there is an application of verse 16 for our context, maybe it's this. So long as our nation or some individual we're praying for, so long as they refuse to listen to God, we are right to plead with God to bring them to true repentance. But maybe we shouldn't plead with Him to deliver them from short-term hardships and troubles. Maybe we should at least be open to the idea that God might use short-term hardships, short-term judgments to turn people to Him so they escape the final judgment. Later in Jeremiah, we'll see that is exactly what God is going to do with this short-term judgment on Judah. God will bring new life after the tearing down and laying waste of Judah. So never give up asking God to deliver people from final judgment. And let's recognize he may use some painful short-term judgments in their life to bring about long-term deliverance. We've noticed God's point in this section is that the people are not listening to him. But they're very busy doing a whole lot of other things. Look at verse 17. 
Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. The first part of verse 18 sounds pretty good. Here's an industrious family, and they're all working together. Everyone's pulling their weight, the kids, the dad, the mom. But it turns out all of this united effort is in the service of the queen of heaven. The original queen of heaven was the goddess Ishtar, which incidentally is where our word Easter comes from. So even though we might not have heard about Ishtar before, we actually use her name quite often. But Ishtar was not popular in the nations around Judah at this time, so it's more likely the queen of heaven here means the Canaanite goddess Asherah. In any case, it's not really important who the people thought she was because she was a nothing, a false god. But rather than listen to the true God, the God who communicates with his people, the God who reveals himself to his people, these families are busy serving a God they had chosen for themselves. And I think we are to understand these are some of the same people who flock to the Lord's temple every weekend. This is what they do the rest of the week in the towns around Jerusalem and the streets of Jerusalem. These people have compartmentalized their lives. The Lord's compartment takes up one day and their own compartment takes up the other six. They worship at the Lord's temple on the weekend and they're happy to do that. It takes care of their responsibility to the Lord, they think. And then they think they're free to do their own thing the rest of the week. Before you and I look down our noses at these silly people, let's ask ourselves, if people examined my life Monday to Saturday, what conclusions would they draw about what I live for? If Sunday was taken out of the equation, would there be enough evidence on those other days to convict me of being a Christian? During the week, am I taking a lead in my family in worship of the Lord? Does the object of my worship Monday to Saturday match the object of my worship here on a Sunday? Or are we united as families in our worship of entertainment together? Or money? Or the next stuff we're going to get for ourselves? As a family, do we unite to worship exam results, promotions, awards? As families, do we join together in the week in serving our bitterness, maybe, towards some enemy of our family? Is that the driving force in our lives? Look what God says about those who compartmentalize their lives towards the end of verse 18. 
They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? At one level, yes, they certainly are provoking the Lord with their false worship. But God's point is, I'm not the one who's impacted the most by this way of living. The main impact is on the people who live this way. They're storing up fire for themselves. In verse 20, my anger and my wrath will be poured out in this place. It will burn and not be quenched. Is it really that serious to give God one day a week, to go his way one day and then go our own way the other six? Well, God explains why it's a problem starting in verse 21. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forwards. The reason it's so serious to compartmentalize our lives and give part to God and part for ourselves is because God never gave that as an option. He says here, it was never meant to be just about sacrifices on the Sabbath. These people are being scrupulous, it seems, about doing their sacrifices by the book. Let's get the manual out and see that we get it right. Burnt offerings were supposed to be totally consumed on the altar with nothing left. But with the other sacrifices, the person bringing the sacrifice received part of it back so they could eat it themselves. There was a procedure to all of this. But God says, just forget it. You may as well fish the burnt offering back off the altar and eat that yourself. Have two burgers instead of one for all I care. What does he mean? He means that getting the sacrificial rituals right was never the main thing. The main thing is there in the middle of verse 22. Walk in obedience to all I command you. In the Bible, walking means your way of life. To walk in obedience means to live a life of obedience, day to day. And so obedience for God was always about much more than getting the right part of the bull on the right altar at the right time. It was always about everything. Living to honor God every day and every part of every day. Dragging a bull to the altar was just a small part of it. And if the people had listened to God, they would have known that. And today, singing songs and listening to sermons is just a small part of our worship. Sunday is not our day to take care of worship for the week. This is our day to be refueled for a whole week of worship. 
That's why we sometimes say at the end of our meeting together, now go in peace to love and to serve your king. Yes, this time is worship, but it's only the start. We listen to God together, so we're ready to obey when we leave the building. Doing what God mentioned earlier in the passage, treating people fairly, showing them mercy instead of exploiting them or cheating them. Being honest, even when it's hard to be honest. Being faithful to our daily responsibilities. Jesus explained it as letting our light shine before others, that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. It's not going to happen if we're worshiping ourselves or our money or our comfort all week long. And when a whole society decides to live their lives without listening to God, then it gets terribly, terribly ugly. Look down to verse 30. If we thought that baking a few cakes for the Queen of Heaven wasn't really that bad, here we're shown the dark side of ignoring God and doing our own thing. Verse 30, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. In other words, God says, no one who listens to me could do a thing like this. When Judah tried to worship God but still go her own way, the result eventually was idols in the Lord's temple and child sacrifice in the valley outside the temple. We saw a few weeks ago how King Josiah had worked so hard to reform the nation's worship. But because that reform never reached down to the people's hearts, all of that evil started up again when Josiah's son Jehoiakim became king. He had no interest in upholding his father's reform, and so the idols came back, and the child sacrifice came back. Historians tell us how that took place in the valley outside Jerusalem. A metal idol was heated with fire, then the baby was put into the blazing hot hands of the idol where it burned to death. That appalls us. We find it disgusting. But today, in this country, we sacrifice more children through abortion than Judah ever did through her idols. In the USA, abortion is far and away the leading cause of death in the country. Every year, there are well over 800,000 abortions. That is way more than deaths due to heart disease. It's way more than deaths due to cancer or accidents 
It's way more than the other leading causes of death combined. I don't have the figures for this country, but I would guess it's not much different here. Think about that. We're a society obsessed, aren't we, with finding cures for illness. We're obsessed with protecting life through health and safety regulations. And yet we take more lives on purpose than are claimed by illness or accident. Here in Judah, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, no doubt the priests who performed this procedure did it with great ceremony and precision. It probably didn't seem so barbaric that way. Just like we pretend our child sacrifices aren't barbaric because they're performed in a sterile environment by a trained professional. And why do we do it? We do it because we worship today our own comfort. We worship our own convenience. We worship our own career plans. Those are the idols we sacrifice our children to. Since we're not listening to God as a nation, we think we have a right to choose that someone else should die so we can be happy. When a nation begins by deciding it's okay to give God one day a week and we'll keep the other six for ourselves, when our worship goes in that direction, one day we wake up and discover we will actually stop at nothing to serve ourselves. We find we are living in a culture of death that's headed for death. That's the case in Judah. Look at verse 32. So beware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the signs of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. When a society decides to serve itself, family life dies. The society that sacrifices its children ends up with no children. God goes on at the beginning of chapter 8. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of the heavens, which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshipped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. The valley of Ben-Hinnom 
started as a valley of death for Judah's children, the place of child sacrifice. But God says it will become the valley of death for all Judah. Here the adults are pictured lying dead on the ashes of their sacrificed children. The message is that worthless worship leads to death. And notice, even the already buried will get no rest. Judah's enemies will dig up their bones and leave them exposed. Judah was determined to live life without listening to God. She lived for false gods, but they can't help her. She worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. But those false gods can't raise these bodies. They can't even put these bodies to rest. It's a shocking picture. It's not the kind of picture we like to focus on. Thank goodness Jesus didn't give brutal warnings like this. But actually he did. By New Testament times, this valley of Ben-Hinnom was known as Gehenna. Jesus chose this horrific place to picture the eternal punishment of those who refused to listen to God. A place where even the dead get no rest. Jesus said the valley of Ben-Hinnom is a picture of hell. Remember how this passage started? It started with worshipers flocking to the Lord's temple, thinking they were safe and secure in their defiance of the Lord. That passage that starts with a busy temple ends with this, with those people in hell. This passage is a warning that religious ritual doesn't save us. We can't save ourselves either. We can't go our own way and hope we'll be all right in the end. We can't give an occasional nod in God's direction and hope we'll be all right in the end. Our only hope is to lay our whole lives at God's feet. And that means coming to the one who said those horrifying things about hell in the New Testament. Because the same Jesus who spoke so graphically about hell chose to go through hell for our sake. He took the horrors of God's punishment so you and I could avoid them. But Jesus did not go through those horrors so we could take him for granted and carry on like before, living for ourselves. That's just repeating the mistake the people of Judah made, taking God's salvation for granted. Jesus did what he did for us so we could live new lives, listening to God, seeking to walk in obedience to him every day, Not just Sundays. 
looking to him for the strength and power to walk in obedience. And so as we close, let's thank him for his life-giving work of salvation. He is a shelter for everyone who runs to him. We are safe under his blood. And let's also recommit ourselves to live for him, to walk in obedience, to honor him in our everyday attitudes, our everyday priorities, our words, and our actions. So we'll sing, my Lord, what love is this? And then, O great God of highest heaven.